Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Welcome to the Law School Lounge. Thank you so much for joining me. This is your host, Crystal Norton. And in this next set of episodes, I speak with the Carolina Academic Press authors of Getting to Maybe, How to Excel on Law School Exams. Professors Richard Michael Fischel and Jeremy R. Paul are now in their second edition, recently released, of this law school classic book that is recommended for many first-year students. And so in our discussions, we talk about things like case briefing, issue spotting, what is an argument, and we talk a lot about how to navigate just getting started in law school and also how to feel confident as you prepare and work through the trials and tribulations of class for exam time. Now, let me just share a little bit about these wonderful authors. The first edition of Getting to Maybe actually came out in the 90s, and this new second edition expands on some topics, including the case brief, which is one of the reasons why we do talk about that. But beyond that, these two have incredible resumes and have done such incredible work for the legal profession. Richard Michael Fischel is currently at UConn, the University of Connecticut School of Law. Richard Michael Fischel is a labor law scholar who spent four years with the Division of Enforcement Litigation at the National Labor Relations Board. He also spent a year with the litigation unit of the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board before joining the University of Miami faculty in 1983. And you'll hear both of these professors talk about their time at the University of Miami and some of the things that they learned or picked up while they had their time there. He taught at the University of Miami for 23 years. He then found himself at the University of Connecticut in 2006, and his research interests include things related to labor relations and labor law, like union organizing and collective bargaining, also the individual contract of employment, legal theory, and of course, legal education. As you'll see, they have a lot to offer in this space. Professor Fischel has received many awards. In 2005, he was the recipient of Miami's Golden Apple Award. And from 2008 to 2010, he served as an associate dean for research and faculty development at the University of Connecticut. Now, let's hear a little bit about Professor Jeremy R. Paul. So, Professor Paul served as the dean of Northeastern University School of Law from 2012 until 2018. And Professor Paul continues to teach at Northeastern University School of Law today. Professor Paul also found himself at the University of Connecticut. As you can see, there's a theme here. These two have followed each other and had a great working relationship and friendship over the years. Professor Paul was also dean at the University of Connecticut School of Law, and one of his main interests is property law. Prior to joining the academy and this very long-term career as a professor and mentor, Professor Paul was actually a law clerk to Judge Kaufman in the United States Courts of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Professor Paul is a fellow of the American Bar Foundation. He also serves as a co-editor of the Association of American Law School, or AALS's, Journal of Legal Education. So to say the least, these two have really accomplished so many incredible things during their careers. Their careers are full of experience that bring insight and honesty to the discussion topics relevant to first-year law students as they're trying to navigate everything that's going on. One of the main things I did want to point out to you before we get started is that getting to maybe 
sort of blossomed out of this concept that was started by Professor Paul through this introduction to legal reasoning article called A Bedtime Story. It was published in the Virginia Law Review. It is still available and widely read today. And we will reference it briefly within our discussions in these episodes. And it will be available as a link in the description. So I really strongly recommend that if you are a new law student, you take a look at this article because it really provides an accessible and relatable way of thinking about legal analysis and argument. And it will only build upon all of the wonderful themes that we talk about in these episodes. So I think it's about that time. Let's get started. The first thing that I want to talk to our wonderful professors about today our case briefs. So my first question for you is what is a case brief and do law students need to do them? So that is a great question. Uh, And I think the starting point for at least some of your listeners will be before we even get to the question of what is a case brief is what is a case? Uh, Because one of the things that's uh, surprising for many students when they first uh, arrive at law school uh, is that there really are no textbooks. Uh, no books that were written uh, for the purpose of communicating to them uh, what the law is. Uh, Instead, uh, mostly what they will read uh, are opinions uh, written by judges, uh, and the judges wrote them for the litigants uh, and for other judges, and not really necessarily with uh, students uh, in mind. And so it's a very challenging um, uh, transition uh, for many people how am I supposed to take things that were not written for me uh, and figure out what to do with them and how I can get the law out of them? Uh, And so that uh, challenge leads to the question about, well, what's a brief? And a brief basically is a way that uh, students can go over this very dense material and uh, extract from this dense material lessons that they want to keep in mind as the course uh, goes on. Uh, Without briefs, uh, you're left with attempting to go back uh, and read all that stuff over again, which is very challenging. And when you're in class, uh, if you were called on, uh, it's hard to know what to say when the professor asks you a question. Whereas if you have a brief, which is really just another word for a summary, uh, and it's sometimes oxymoronic to call it a brief because it may not not be that short, uh, (laughs) but uh, it's it's an entree uh, into, into the taking the cases that you read and making them work for you. And yes, I would say uh, that it's an extremely rare student uh, who can get through uh, the opening uh, period of law school uh, without uh, learning both how to do a brief uh, and doing quite a bit of it. And that's one of the reasons why in this new second edition of our book, uh, we've devoted an entire chapter uh, to the case brief, uh, which perhaps I'll let Michael tell you a little bit about. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very much with Jeremy on the need to translate texts that are written for a very different purpose into learning vehicles. And the case brief or the summary is a great way to do it. While we're on the topic of the function, though, I would also say that judicial opinions play a central role in law that comes frequently as a surprise to students. I know it did to me when I went to law school. They come looking for rules. Yeah. And and unless you've had an undergrad course where you encountered them, it really, it is one of the, whoa, what, you know, what's this about? And, um, and, and so it, it's, I don't think it's intuitive that cases are so cases and opinions are so central to the language and life of the law that learning to talk about them is one of the most important but sort of undiscussed skills right right um we talk about how to read them and how to understand them and how to interpret them but but whether you're talking to a client about the law or to a senior partner who has assigned you a memo or you're in court and you're 
citing a precedent or talking to a colleague about a recent case. We communicate about cases all the time. And you, I suppose you could refer to them the way that friends used to refer to particular episodes, like, you know, the one about no more abortion <laughs> rights or whatever. Um, and, and sometimes that'll do the trick. But it turns out um, that apart from the handful of famous cases that make the papers every June when the Supreme Court decides um, to upend the Constitution for us all once again, um, there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases that we read in law school. And the case brief gives you a way to talk about them, a way, a, a sort of common template or a common summary um, uh, summary format to talk about them. And that's very much what we've tried to do in the new material that appears in the second edition of Getting the Maybe. Uh, there's an entire chapter on case briefing. And it, 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 a little bit of history about it, I think, is important in order to give credit where it's due, but also to talk about, um, uh, about its centrality to the understanding and practice of law. When I was a law student, they told us to brief cases. They kind of told us how, but you heard different things from different people, and you kind of developed your own style. And I didn't think I didn't think that much of it as a student. I I definitely briefed cases, but I but I I would not say that was something I had down. I had class notes down. I had outlining down. Mm -hmm. Case briefs were kind of random. Um, I got to Miami. And it turned out because of a particular culture at the University of Miami where Jeremy and I both fought uh, in the early 1980s uh, as teenage, as the only teenage law professors in the history <laughs> of legal education. There was a style that was associated with um, the former dean there, Dean Soya Menchikoff, who was the first woman everything in law, first woman law professor at Harvard, first woman law professor at the University of Chicago, uh, a transformational dean at the University of Miami, uh, reporter for the Uniform Commercial Code, a, sort of a major figure. And she had this case brief. And she and a colleague, Erwin Stotsky, who was a dear mentor to both of us, um, had developed this case brief to teach law student, first-year law students with. And my reaction once I saw it in action was, oh, my God, I wish I'd had that in law school. Even more, I wish I'd had that in practice. Mm -hmm. Because I can say to this day, having learned the Miami case brief, I, when I read a new case that I'm going to teach or I'm going to write about, briefing it Miami style is what, uh, what I do. And let me say one more thing, because I, I want to have a payoff on that it teaches you how to communicate about cases whether it's with a scary teacher in a law school class who says you know what's the hairy hand case you know please state the hairy hand case or a scary judge in a federal court you know, what about the bloomfield case um i would say one of the most valuable pieces in terms of that kind of in terms of the summary function, is what we refer to in the book as the three little questions. Who's suing whom, for what, and on what theory? You get that much, and it turns out you know so much about the case through that, because the question who's suing whom isn't really their proper names, because that doesn't tell you anything. And it doesn't do you much good, even though brand new law students love to use words like plaintiff and defendant and appellate and appellee, but those don't mean anything. I mean, mm -hmm. they mean something in a lawsuit, but they mean nothing in the real world. Teacher suing school, right? Employee suing employer. Relationships are very much at the heart of so much law. So who's suing whom? If that's cast in relational terms, you know a lot about the case. You've just narrowed the case, the range of cases dramatically once you said that. 
the for what element, the second little question, asks, you know, when someone does something bad to you, you have a bunch of alternatives. You know, one of them is to rise above it. Another is to punch them in the nose. Another is to trash them online uh, and their business. So why does someone go to court? Why does someone seek the law? And the for what is the answer to that question. What do they want? What, what, do they, what can they get? What do they hope to get from the law that turns this into a, uh, a case? Lawyers aren't free. Courts aren't wildly friendly places. Um, it's a fairly big deal to file the suit. So knowing what the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is, is, is really crucial. Sure. And the on what theory or on what basis is uh, basically the question that says, so what makes you think a court's going to do anything about this? You need to explain why the law gives you, uh, affords the suing party the remedy, the for what that she seeks. It could be a claim of negligence or breach of contract or what have you. But once you've, once you've addressed those three little questions, who's suing whom, for what, and on what theory, you've said a lot about the case and um, you've communicated a lot about the case. And the rest of the analysis is really uh, easy to follow from there. No, I really think that the three questions are a good way to look at it. And honestly, I took a look at the chapter in your book on case briefs. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, this is way more detailed probably than any case brief I had written or maybe more organized than any case brief I had ever written. And I had a feeling much like you did, like this was, this is a really helpful format. I could see why it would be beneficial in the long term. I would venture to say that many law students view this case brief, right? Because you get to law school and they're like, you need to do these case briefs. I remember in my orientation, I was told about case briefs. So it was not even starting class yet. And there's this thought that the case brief's purpose is to prepare you for exams. Essentially, it's a way for you to take notes, for lack of a better descriptor, in preparation for your exams or in your very small view of what law school is and what's going on, that's what you think. But there's so much more to the concept of a case brief and what you learn while you make a case brief that kind of goes over your head when you first get started, I would say. You know, like the relationships between procedural posture, procedural history, and what's going on in the case now and just learning how the different parts of the case work together and how you find law out of a case. I mean, you learn all of that through the exercise of doing a case brief, in my opinion, but you don't recognize that at first. And so if you skip that stage altogether, right, because some students think, why should I bother doing a case brief? It takes too much time. I'm just going to do this another way, right? But there is a lot of value to the case brief. It's been around for a long time for a reason. Well, we certainly think so. And, and I think, you know, you will find, uh, when you talk to us, uh, the more consistent we're going to be. Uh, when you said, which I certainly agree with, that many students think about the case brief as, oh, God, this is something I have to do for exams. Uh, and then, like, uh, in many parts of school before that, they think of exams as a, a chore and something largely separate from what they're going to do later. Uh, law school is not like that. And the skills that you need for exams, which really, that's our whole book, right? We, we got into this um, uh, project uh, because we felt uh, that law schools do a very poor job of explaining to students what's actually going to happen to them uh, on the exam. Uh, and the three little questions uh, that Michael identified are enormously productive for taking a story. Right? Here's what's going to happen to you as a client, as a lawyer. Your client's going to walk into the office and the client's going to say, here's what happened to me. They're not going to know any law unless they happen to be a lawyer uh, or have you know, read various internet sites. 
Uh, but what they're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is there's a person out there, and the person out there hurt them, and they're suffering, right? And they're going to say to you, what can we do about the fact that I've been hurt? And what they're paying you for, uh, which is why we test this on exams, is can you identify a way in which the harm that they have suffered is connected to some protection the law provides? Because the mere fact that you're hurt does not give you a lawsuit, right? If I open up a restaurant right next door to your restaurant uh, and my food is better and my prices are cheaper, I can put you out of business. And if you bring a lawsuit against me, the judges are going to laugh you out of court, right? That's America, free enterprise. But if I hit you over the head, but if I hit you over the head with a baseball bat, well, that's suffering too. Uh, But there, there's a well-defined law, the law of battery, that will say you're going to have to pay me for having done that to me. So the um, the project of identifying what Michael called the theory is the root of what happens when you're in practice, and therefore. It's also the root of what happens when you show up in the exam room and what you read is a story. This is what happened, right? And you need to identify, okay, well, who did it happen to? Who who was the person who created the problem? Uh, And is there some uh, legal theory that will enable the person who's suffering uh, in order to recover? So the three questions is a great way to start thinking not just uh, about exams, uh, but also about what uh, practice is like. And it's an entree into understanding the case as a whole, right? And then the next thing that you're going to have to figure out is most of these opinions that you read are going to be opinions that are not written by the first judge who uh, confronts the parties. There, 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 there will be a trial uh, which someone will win and someone will have lost. And the person who loses will have to do the issue identification a second time, right? So the lawyer who um, has the client walk into his, her, or their office uh, will have to figure out, is there a theory? And now the lawyer that loses the case will have to figure out, did something happen in the trial that was awry that gives me grounds to go to a higher court and say, hey, that wasn't fair, right? Now, sometimes the thing that went awry will be simple. It will be the trial judge just misunderstood the law. They got the law wrong. Uh, and higher court, we call it an appellate court, fix it. Right? Other times, there'll be other issues. Was evidence introduced that should not have been introduced? Uh, were the jury instructions faulty? Was the case brought in the wrong court? All kinds of things like that. Uh, and you, as the person writing the case brief, I've got to figure out what was identified as the problem that took place uh, in the trial court and why is this uh, issue uh, going up on appeal. That's another aspect of the case brief. I was just going to say, I remember reading one of my first cases and thinking, what is an appellant and what is an appellee, right? Because it's not intuitive for you to think that you're going to be reading cases that are not the initial trial case. You think you're going to be looking at cases where it's the first bite at the apple and everyone's present, everyone's trying to put evidence. You know what you see on TV. But when you're reading cases, it is not necessarily that, right? You're reading cases on appeal and that might be to the appellate court or the highest court, but it comes with a lot of terminology. So just identifying the parties and stuff helps you work through that vocabulary so that you're in a good position to continue to digest and read cases much easier down the line. I'd add an insight that what Jeremy described Please. Um, prompted me to think, which is this, this is another feature of the Miami-style case brief that we think is so helpful. Um, and why we've we've embraced it, souped it up, um, added a number of bells and whistles, but why we still genuflect at the altar of Soya Menchikov and Erwin Stotsky. <laughs> um, and it's this. Every opinion is two stories. There's a story that happened 
out in the real world, right? It's the story that the client comes to the office with. Then there's a second story, which is the, the lawyer's story, what the lawyers do with it. If they file a lawsuit, where they file the lawsuit, how it's disposed of. And the fabulous thing about the, the brief you'll find, in, uh, now find in getting the maybe, is it, it this disentangles those two stories, this, this format disentangles those two stories. Mm. One thing that happened endlessly in law school and, and happens in my classroom, even though I try to be a case brief into my students, um, uh, is someone will say, will ask about the facts, and someone will start talking about the court dismissing the complaint. And that's not wrong. That was, that's a fact. That happened in the real world, right? But it's, it, there, there are two sets of facts, because there are two stories. And again, this, uh, the, the case brief the students will find in getting to maybe distinguishes the narrative facts, the, sto the story of the parties from the, from the story that happens once the, the lawyers, the action stops in the real world and the lawyers get a hold of it. So with that, I guess, in mind, can we walk through what a typical case brief includes or like from start to finish? You know, so you have, do you start with your three questions? Yes, you start with the three questions with one uh, technical caveat, which is even before uh, you um, go into the nitty gritty of the brief, uh, you want to write down the name of the case. One of the things that's confusing about the name of the case, which you referenced uh, in your earlier comment, uh, is that sometimes uh, the name of the plaintiff goes first, uh, and sometimes the name of the appellant goes first, uh, and the appellant might be the defendant. So sometimes they so you so you, you write that down. What court decided the case? What year was it decided? Just so you're oriented. And, and I have a colleague at uh, Northeastern who repeatedly asks the students to uh, highlight the year the case was decided, because it makes a huge difference uh, if a case is decided in 2022 uh, or 1912. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that's it. it. <laughs> but then ab after that, absolutely, the the three little questions is always the way uh, that we. Uh, suggest uh, that you start. Um, uh, and then we talked a little bit about highlighting what happened in the lower courts. Uh, and as Michael said, then the facts, right? Okay. Uh, and only at that point um, do you then get to the next part of the brief, which is now you want to identify what's the issue on appeal. In other words, what what is the error that the lawyer for the disappointed party identifies as grounds to, hey, you got it wrong, you got to fix it. Uh, did they misunderstand the law? Was there an instructions problem? Uh, all those things. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're going to write your issue, but you're going to you're going but you're going to remember that you could frame the issue in multiple ways, depending on how many facts you want to work into your statement. So. You know, an open-ended uh, kind of uh, statement of the issue uh, would be, um, you know, can uh, a person who makes a statement in a newspaper uh, that is um, seems like an opinion uh, be um, treated as libelous, right? But then if you want to narrow the issue, right, you can start putting in facts. Can someone who said the following in a newspaper which could be characterized as opinion. Could someone uh, who said the following in a newspaper in an opinion column? Uh, and, you, and the more facts right. you add, the narrower the issue gets. Uh, and as you'll see as we get on to further into the brief, the way you frame the issue tells you a good bit about what ultimately it is that the court decided. Because in the end, uh, you're going to be able to describe the outcome of the case. Uh, in two very different ways. The simplest way, and this is the next step in the brief, is who won? Who won mm -hmm. and what they get? So uh, the decision of the trial court was affirmed uh, and the plaintiff can walk away with $10,000 in damages. Right? We call that the result. But then, right, 
the question now, and this is directly related to the very important point Michael made before, uh, which is all of this case briefing is crucial to being a lawyer, not just doing one of the exams, because when your client comes in with a story to begin with, and they tell you the story, the first question you're going to ask yourself as the lawyer is, has anything like this ever happened before? Right? Mm-hmm. Are there any prior decisions that tell me, oh, well, I know that happened to you. Someone else that happened to, they walked away with a big judgment, right? And I'm starting to, you know, count my golf trips. Uh, <laughs> or something that happened to someone and they got thrown out of court. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be working, burning the midnight oil to get some new clients because you're not going to do much for me. Right? So, so the, um, the result of the case only tells the very narrow story of what happened to these, this, these parties. But then the other and more significant description of what happens in the case is something that lawyers everywhere refer to as the holding. And the holding of the case builds in the result, who won, with a statement about the judge's opinion about what the law is, right? You uh, will be awarded $10,000 damages because uh, the um, person uh, with whom you were dealing breached a contract. Uh, And a contract was formed uh, when uh, an offer was made and acceptance was put forward. And that's enough to make a contract. The contract was breached. You get money. And now what you can do with that, and this was Michael's point from before, is now you know something about contract law. You now know that if these Uh facts are repeated, you're going to get the same result, assuming that the court is in good faith, which we'll assume for purposes of these uh, discussions. So uh, (laughs) the statement of the holding uh, is not only useful to these parties right now, but it's also useful uh, to all future uh, people who find themselves uh, in similar situations. And significantly, what that means is you're going to be a student who's going to find yourself on an exam in a situation that looks something like, but also something Mm -hmm. different from, uh, the situation in the case that you already read. And so knowing the holdings of the cases will help you immediately to figure out, oh, well, the court held this, but maybe not exactly the same as what I'm uh, facing now. Uh, And then the last part of the brief is why. The question that everybody thinks that they got to law school to learn, which is, well, when the court held that, made that decision, why did they do it? Uh, And they uh, provide uh, typically two different kinds of reasons. Uh, Reasons which Michael and I characterize somewhat differently. Um, uh, So I'll let him describe his versions first, uh, should and must, and then I'll describe mine second. Yeah, one kind of reason courts use all the time, um, I call must reasons, and they are indeed the reasons that students expect to come to law school and learn. Okay. You know, a must reason is there's a rule and the court has to follow it, and so that's why the case came out this way. They don't necessarily anticipate when they're lay people the idea of Uh, there's a case like this one and we think the cases are enough alike that we're going to follow it but that's a new maneuver you make the point of must reasons is the court is in effect saying don't blame us we're doing what we have to do we're doing what the law says what prior prior case law or what an existing statute or what a well-known common law rule says the should reasons are reasons that have to do a bunch of different ideas fit in should. Fairness mm. is one thing. A public policy is another. Equity, which isn't necessarily fairness, but there's certainly a, a similar component. These are should reasons in and Sometimes courts use them to say, we had to do what we're doing here, but you know what? I see. We think what we did here is right, and here's why. Here are the shoulds that are consistent with the way this came out. But there are lots of cases 
more, in fact, than judges will typically admit, where there isn't a rule or a case that commands a particular result. And Mm -hmm. as we have been recently reminded by our Supreme Court, even when there's a case that commands a result, the court might think, well, we don't don't do that anymore. Um, And in cases like cases either where there is uh, there isn't a precedent or there isn't a rule or cases in which the court's rethinking precedent or rethinking rule it's frequently relying on should reasons that forth forthrightly making decisions based on what's right what's fair uh, what makes sense as a matter of policy and before we hear Jeremy's analysis on this, I would like for you, if you don't mind, to clarify why it's important to distinguish between must and should. In my thinking, it's partly simply to understand what the court has done. To what extent is it, when, when a court says what we're doing here is unremarkable, we don't have a choice, we can evaluate that. You know, the, the dissenting judge might not agree at all with that proposition, but certainly critics of the opinion might not believe it. But it is helpful to know what the source of authority, we're really talking about what's the authority for a decision, what the source of authority is. That tells you, among other things, if you, if you want to push on the opinion or come at it from a different direction in another case, you can go back to the authority, go back to the original case, um, go back to the statute, see what the court's relying on. Should reasons, by contrast, there's a school of, a longstanding school of the thought in American law um, that begins with the holy of holies himself, Oliver Wendell Holmes who early on said, yeah, judges say they're following the rules, but oh my gosh, they are frequently instead enacting their understandings of good policy. Mm-hmm. And ever since Holmes and then after him, um, the, the, particularly the legal realists of the 1920s and the 1930s, a focus on um, looking at judicial opinions as statements of policy, uh, state, um, statements that are sourced not in the constraint of authority making you do it, but instead of discretion, of making choices among competing values and competing claims, that that's a very important part of, of law. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say one other thing. I'm very eager to hear Jeremy's uh, take on must and should because um, he's, he's practically got me convinced that his way is better. It's this. There, there, um, if you think of a judicial opinion like a family recipe, like the one your grandmother wrote, um, the, the law student's case brief is like the grandson or uh or grandchild of grandma sitting in the kitchen taking notes and and she tells you this you do this and you do this and you do this and you write it write it down and in the in subsequent family life uh you'll always refer to this dish as grandma's turkey or grandma's dressing or grandma's brisket or what have you uh because that's what it has its origin and you can treat that as like holy scripture and you deviate from that and she will come down from heaven or in the case of one of my grandmothers come up from hell and strike you down so it's like you will obey that recipe at all costs but in other families especially you know we live in an era where everybody's a foodie and chefs are now television stars and uh and the like um tweaking adding, finding, well, this part of the recipe works really well, but I'm going to do something else with it, um, and changing the recipe. The, the, the reason I'm making this point about the recipe, about either following it as scripture, 
or deviating from it in subsequent cases is that the cases that students read in law school have exactly the same quality. When they're trying to read it the first time just to understand it, they're kind of taking notes on what their grandma said. But then they watch what happens if their casebook presents a line of cases Mm -hmm. or if during their course, the Supreme Court decides a case and suddenly they're reading about the case and it's like, well, wait a minute, that's not grandma's recipe. (laughs) That's a very different way of of describing it. And so um, cases have these two lives that on the one hand, they're a thing in the moment, but on the other hand, they're a tool for advocacy for lawyers and judges in later cases. And the recipe can be tweaked pretty significantly in those later cases. Fair enough. Would you like to share your views, Jeremy, please? Uh, I I would. So I'm going to start by going back to the question that you asked about why it's so important to separate these reasons out. From my perspective, failing to do that could really be fatal to an attorney in front of a judge or to a student taking an exam. I agree. And the reason for that is that the arguments that we're now describing as must reasons resonate very strongly with certain kinds of judges and certain kinds of professors, right? They demonstrate that you have mastered what has come before and you are coming in front of the decision maker saying your honor this matter has been settled and all i'm asking you to do is follow the rules and if instead you start introducing ideas that say well your honor my client should win because that's the fair outcome so in some contexts you will be seen as not lawyerly. You will be seen as um, imposing personal preferences uh, where only law will do. Now, this is an oversimplification of the problem, but it's very important because the student who on the exam says, this is the law because it is fair, is likely to get into big trouble. The student who says the way to read the cases is this is a better reading of what was written than that reading uh, because the underlying concerns of the judge were so-and-so and the judge wanted to be fair and therefore wrote their opinion this way. Well, now you're talking about an argument. But blurring the two is something that can really get a student into big trouble. So I think it's important as best as you can uh, to keep very much in mind that law is a complicated enterprise, uh, which often involves following the rules and often involves uh, interpreting the rules in ways that comport uh, with various things in the world that we like, fairness, economic efficiency, ease of administration, things of that nature. Now, I'm totally on board with the must-should elaboration. Uh, that's, what we, that's the one we use in the book. But the way I teach my students the same thing is I distinguish between um, reasons from the past, which fits great with the grandmother recipe. It does. What, yes, and reasons about the future, right? So uh, when you are basing an argument on an earlier case, on a statute, on a constitutional provision, on an administrative regulation. All those things were already out there before you ended up here in court this day. Uh, And when you say to the judge, Your Honor, you, to use Michael's formulation, must rule this way because that's how they did it before, right? You are in the realm of uh, familiar legal argument that will resonate with a lot of judges. And the way Michael puts it, I had no choice when I'm the judge. I had to decide it this way. But no judge, right? No, nobody takes on the black robes and starts getting called your honor 
uh, and you know is exalted and revered and all those things that have these engines in order to be a robot. But if it were always the case that one could determine the correct outcome uh, in a dispute by looking at the past, right? Well, then we wouldn't need judges at all. And maybe one day we'll have artificial intelligence and they'll do all of it and who knows. But we're not there yet. Uh, and the reason why we're not there yet is because, at this we're going to talk about this maybe uh, in a later episode, uh, is the law is riddled with places where all of the things from the past do not give you a clear outcome, right? So that's why we need judges, right? And even when there seems to be a clear outcome, judges always want to tell themselves, when I reach this result in this dispute, I am making the world a better place for the future. The world will be better because, and it may be better because it's fairer, it may be better because there's greater equity, it may be better because this is easier to administer, it may be better because the government's going to stand in your business, it may be better because uh, we're going to promote economic growth. All of those things are better, the world will be, will, will be a better place. And so I, I teach the two kinds of reasons as reasons from the past and reasons about the future. But it's really the same idea. And it goes back to the fact that whatever you do when you're talking to a judge or more importantly for this audience, when you're writing your exam, you want to be as clear as you can about when you are saying, um, this has already been decided, my past formulation, or you, Your Honor, have no choice, you must do it this way, the must formulation, that's half the rule. Or alternatively, when you're saying, I'm going to rule this way because I should do so, or I'm going to rule this way because the world will be a better place in the future, those are two different styles of argument, and mixing them up will get you into big trouble. Okay. So let me, if you don't mind, take a stab at maybe giving an example of each. So then that way we can kind of put this in context. Well, let's, let's see what I can do. So if we're talking about a must rule, and we're talking about grandma's recipe, a must sort of concept would be something related to how a statute in the past has defined grandma. Grandma means someone who is in a direct line of family members and so on and so forth, right? And right now I'm saying this is my grandma's recipe and and the, it, she meets the definition that's been set out previously. And so you must find that she's a grandma and it's her recipe. So that would be like a must. Whereas a should would be like, well... If this person is considered a grandma, then in the future, so many other people will now be considered grandmas and all of their recipes would be subjected to these rules and all of these other requirements. And we'd have all of these extra cases in court and nobody has time to decide all of these cases about grandma's recipe. And so we really shouldn't keep the definition that broad. Would those be examples related to what you both said? I kind of tried to yeah, I, I, put them together. I think <laughs> I think those are good examples. I, I and I would hazard to add to the should example the question. Um, we have a deeply blended family, and so our older daughter had eight grandparents, um, and uh, and um, when in fact. Her father and my wife, who were married and and, uh, and had her, and the two step parents got together and took an ad out in her high school graduation yearbook. We said, "Remember, Blair. In the end, the one with the most grandparents wins." <laughs> um, and the question in these blended blended families is, well, you know, when your dad marries another woman and the other woman has a mom, but she's, her husband died, but she's remarried. Is that guy the grandpa? Um, and I can tell you three-year-olds call him grandpa or come up with their own version of it. But if we have a specific, to use, to continue your example, we have a specific um, set of conventions that follow from how we worship uh, the the recipes of grandmas, then the hard cases of whether it's a grandma begin to count. The rules don't answer it, 
right? Because we all call her grandma. That, so there's, there's that. Um, but the, you know, we would have to think, as Jeremy put it, about, well, do we want a world where blended families are normalized and embraced? Or do we want a world in which the state is teaching, yeah, well, you know, too bad for you, but that's not your grandma. Yeah. And that would be like the counter should argument to like us, I guess would be a slippery slope type idea, which was what I was trying to go after. I think I, I really like this grandma's recipe idea we have going on because I think it, it does help show things. Yeah. But so, so, but, but, you know, so, so you're, you're, you sit down to make the recipe uh, and you're looking at the, let's say you have it written down. Some families do and some families don't. Uh, and the recipe says, you know, four cloves of garlic, minced. And, you know, you're a full-time professional and cooking takes time. Uh, and, you know, you don't feel like getting out the garlic press. Uh, and so someone says, well, let's just use some, uh, you know, garlic powder that we already have. And one person says, well, we could do that, but then it won't be grandma's recipe anymore. Right, because, and now the question is, uh, should you be allowed to use the um, the garlic powder uh, or not? Right, uh, but at least at that point, you could still be debating. Um, even if you use the garlic powder, someone could still say, "Yeah, it is the recipe. It's just the same. It's the same idea." And then the recipe calls for pine nuts, right? And one of the people cooking says, "Pine nuts." I have to mortgage my kids to buy pine nuts. They're just way too expensive. Uh, so, you know, let's use, I don't know, peanuts instead because they're a lot cheaper. Now, right, the argument might be, well, you know, we could do that, but then it really isn't grandma's recipe anymore because we're now, we've now interjected something else like cost, right, which is not really part of following the recipe anymore. And what you will discover, right, is that you'll be some people in the family who will say, just as Michael said before, that's sacrilege, right? This is a recipe that's been handed down for all this time. And if you use peanuts instead of pine nuts, you know, you're a piker. We don't want to go to some other family, right? <laughs> and other people say, wait a minute here, right? You know, grandma, um, you know, lived in his five-bedroom house uh, in the suburbs, and we're living in a, you know, a two-room apartment in the city. We can't afford pine nuts. But we can still be true to grandma by getting as close uh, as possible. So we're gonna we're gonna change things a, a little. That's what law is all about, right? Uh, and that's one of the that's why our book is called Getting to Maybe because the law is riddled uh, with ambiguity. Um, and uh, the case brief is a really great way uh, to dive deeply into these cases, uh, so that when you start to figure out that ambiguity is everywhere, you won't be surprised. Well, I guess that's my last sort of question for you related to case briefs or sort of the last point I want to address. And that is when a student is starting to do case briefs, sometimes, I know I did this as well, you get very caught up in, am I putting the right thing in the right place? Have I missed something? Do you have any sort of quick tips on how a student can feel a little bit more comfortable or confident while they're sorting information in the case brief or writing out the case brief. So for example, one thing I always tell my paralegal students is when you're done, compare the holding you've identified to the issue. If the holding you've identified doesn't directly answer the issue you've identified, something is off. You need to go back and resort out those components, right? So, like, that's one tip I always give. Do you all have tips that the students might find helpful? I think that's a great, a great tip. I want to oh, start by embracing. That's a big compliment. Embracing <laughs> yours. The well, the, the the issue typically asks a question, and the holding answers the question. Um, and it it can be more complicated than that. Um, but, but that's a really good starting point because if the, if the court has posed the issue this way, we expect them to resolve it. 
and the holding is the resolution. So I like that. I, here's what I would say, um, and and it's this: all of the component parts, the who's suing whom, the for what, the on what theory, the procedural posture, the um, the holding, the reasoning, must reasons, should reasons, all of that. I think a student can sitting down for a weekend before law school starts, get a feel for what all of that is. But the way those things will look after a year of law school is much richer and much more complicated and much different. And so a lot of the beating yourself up over what goes where is really a result of you're still developing a sense of what these constituent parts mean Mm -hmm. and that's not this stuff isn't just like grandma's recipe (laughs) it's gonna take time (laughs) it's gonna take time and and and, oh god i hated answers like that when i was a lost at any (laughs) stage of my life you'll understand later um but it is an i think an important lesson about law school generally is that all of this stuff, all of these are intellectual skills. And in the same way that you aren't born with a bat in your hands or able to sink a, you know, uh, uh, sink a basketball, the skills of identifying these constituent parts, really understanding the role um, that they play is one that takes time. So I, so so part of it would be relax and keep reading cases, and keep listening to what the professor says in class and what the professor rewards in class. I thought you made a great point when you said uh, that one thing to check to see if you're on the right track uh, is whether your issue uh, and your holding match up. I thought that was a very good tip, but. Uh, for all of us, when you're learning something new, uh, and there is definitely a way in which uh, law school is like learning a new language, uh, it's sometimes uh, challenging to check yourself. You know, am I doing it right or am I not? And one resource that I really encourage every student uh, to take advantage of uh, is that to the extent that you um, are in doubt, uh, ask your professor. M- many professors uh, will be more than happy uh, to take a look. Uh, at a sample brief that you've done to tell you if you're on the right track. That's what might happen in office hours. Almost all professors will have office hours, even though some of them now are on Zoom. Uh, and, then, and then even uh, failing that, uh, at many schools, uh, there will be upper-class students serving as teaching assistants uh, in the class. Uh, and they will certainly be happy to look at your uh, case briefs because that's kind of what they're getting paid for. Uh, so I uh, really don't don't sleep on uh, resources uh, that are available to you, and, and I would, you know, I would expand that even beyond just the case brief to the whole uh, experience of being a first-year uh, law student. Uh, you know, law professors are busy, uh, which means that we don't have endless time uh, to uh, provide individualized instruction to every student. But at the same time, uh, we love what we do, uh, and if we never had a chance to see any students outside the classroom, uh, we would feel like we were not getting the kind of experience that we want of, you know, helping people uh, enter into our profession. Uh, So uh, it's a balance, but more likely than not, your professors have more time for you than you think. Of course, these are incredible tips, using your resources, double checking yourself in different ways, paying attention in class, asking questions, and definitely just being patient with yourself. One of the things that I really appreciated when I read the first edition of your book right before I went to law school was the understanding that reading something and being able to identify these components is not as simple as something you've probably done previously. In other words, finding a simple answer to something directly, right? Instead, it is that getting to maybe in a lot of ways, it's that uncertainty. It's the idea that it's a skill. 
to identify these component parts and skills take time. It's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just that you're get, gaining skills by doing this versus just exactly. looking up an and answer. As the understandings get richer, the ambiguities seem less problematic. When we talk about who's suing whom, um, if you're talking about a, uh, a dead patient whose estate is suing a doctor for malpractice, it would be a mistake to say patient suing doctor, right? Because patient's dead. That's going to be who, you know, the executor of the estate or the administrator of the estate, depending on whether there's a will. There's a will. But when you're asked the story of what happened in the real world, there were no executors or administrators or indeed lawyers. There was a patient going to the doctor. Right. And students can find this enormous, like, well, wait a minute. Who, what party should I be talking about? And the actual answer to that question is it depends on what we're discussing. We're discussing the lawsuit and the development of that. It's the executor who's in court. If we're discussing the visit to the doctor's office, it's the patient. And to a 1L who wants a straightforward, simple answer, they hate that. <laughs> yeah. Because they're, they're told, you have to use your judgment. It depends on the context. But by the end of the first year, they're so conversant with that context, they don't think twice about making the distinction between the representative in the court and the real party in interest on the other hand. Right. Well, and one thing I like to kind of say to, you know, my students is at the beginning of the semester, right, they brief a case, one of the first ones that we read. And then by the end of the semester, they should be studying and doing all the things you need to do to prepare for your exam. And I say, just take one case that you briefed at the beginning of the semester that we briefed together and brief it yourself and compare the two. And you'll really see the difference in how far you've come from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester. And that's a really big confidence boost, right? And you can start to feel more comfortable in your ability to tackle these things instead of, and especially ahead of an exam, right? That's a, <laughs> that's a good feeling to go into an exam with. And so I, I always urge them to do that because I think you, for, you get so lost in the nitty gritty of the case briefs and all of the things you're doing. Uh, just kind of taking that perspective or taking that step back and seeing how far you've come is is an important one. Oh, agreed. I think that's a that's a wonderful story, and I know from reports of students I've had over the years when when they make when they go back and look at their notes on the early cases, mm -hmm. their class notes they'll be you know, oh my God, where what where was I? I I was I, I even get in it class? Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so, and to the extent that the teacher can find ways to help the students learn just how far they've come, rather than, my experience of law school was the longer I was there, the dumber I got. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's like. <laughs> I just got more tired. <laughs> if, if, if I don't, if I don't get out after three years, there's going to be nothing left. Um, so I was, I, I, I had to, I had to have a breather before I decided to come back into uh, into teaching. But but I would say, um, and this is meant to be a compliment to you, but it's also a compliment to the profession in general. When I was in law school, there were many more of the old-fashioned kinds of law professors who seemed to think that tough love was the best way to teach law. And so belittling and mocking and um and you know the student who starts saying i've got so much out of this it's like the famous scene in the paper chase when when hart says oh i've i've learned so much from your course and the professor looks at him and says what was your name again that you know that's a typical experience mm -hmm. from the 60s or 70s now most of the professors i know think it's part of their job to, to you know to to mentor the people whose tuition hard-earned tuition dollars make the jobs we love possible and so people agreed tend to be agreed well i think that's a lovely note to end our discussion of the case thing. brief on and we'll switch gears into issue spotting in just a moment 
And that concludes this first part of my conversation with the incredible professors Richard Michael Fischel and Jeremy R. Paul. This conversation was centered around case briefs and cases and kind of some of the struggles that law students face as they start reading cases and the law. In our next discussion, we will take a look at what is a legal issue, what is issue spotting, and why is it particularly important, of course, in light of upcoming exams, but also just as a skill for someone who's going to become a legal professional or an attorney in the future. So please join us for the next part of our discussion. Also, please take a moment and leave a five-star review, no matter how short, on any platform where you found us. That really helps get the show recognized and for listeners to find us. You can keep track of our new episodes and everything we have going on here at the Law School Lounge on Instagram and Twitter. Find us at Law School Lounge. Of course, if you have any recommendations or requests for different episodes, please do not hesitate to reach out. You can get in touch with me via email with lawschoolloungepod at caplaw.com. And last but certainly not least, please check out Getting to Maybe How to Excel on Law School Exams. It has become a staple for many first-year students. Schools recommend this book for their first-year students. If you find that this type of information would be helpful to you at this point in your journey, you can purchase the book at cap-press.com. And as a student, you will receive 10% off of your purchase. So make sure you head over there. You can see the full table of contents as well, which can give you a greater picture of what information is also contained in the book. Plus our later episodes, we'll get into that as well. But stay tuned for our next discussion on issue spotting and legal issues. And thanks so much for listening. We can't wait to hang out with you in the law school lounge again. Mm -hmm.